Welcome to Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent in the Year. I'm Mark Langley, and today is day 85 in our exploration. Uh, today we are going to continue with the Sacrament of Penance. Uh, we just have a little bit more to go. We're talking about the integral parts of the sacrament. The, we might remember that the matter of the sacrament is the acts of the penitent, the three acts, the act of contrition, the act of confession, and the act of satisfaction. These are the three integral parts of the sacrament which compose the, the proximate matter. And we might say that the sins that the penitent brings to the confessional are the remote matter. And, uh, of course, the form of the sacrament are the words that the priest says, I absolve you. And so we are going to continue reading um, under that subheading in the Catechism, the third part of penance, satisfaction. So let's begin and uh, see how much we can do here. Let us now come to the third part of penance, which is called satisfaction. We shall begin by explaining its nature and efficacy, because the enemies of the Catholic Church have on these subjects taken ample occasion to sow discord and division to the serious detriment of Christians. Now we have the, we have the uh, subheading, the general meaning of the word satisfaction. Satisfaction is the full payment of a debt, for that is sufficient or satisfactory to which nothing is wanting. Hence, when we speak of reconciliation, to favor, to satisfy means to do what is sufficient to atone to the angered mind for an injury offered. And in this sense, satisfaction is nothing more than compensation for an injury done to another. But to come to the object that now engages us, theologians make use of the word satisfaction to signify the compensation man makes by offering to God some reparation for the sins he has committed. And now we have the subheading, the various kinds of satisfaction to God. This sort of satisfaction, since it has several degrees, can be understood in various senses. The first and highest degree of satisfaction is that by which whatever we owe to God on account of our sins is paid abundantly, even though he should deal with us according to the strictest rigor of his justice. This degree of satisfaction appeases God and renders him propitious to us, and it is a satisfaction for which we are indebted to Christ our Lord alone, who paid the price of our sins on the cross and offered to God a superabundant satisfaction. No created being could have been of such worth as to deliver us from so heavy a debt. He is the propitiation for our sins, says St. John, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That's in 1 John chapter 2. This satisfaction, therefore, is full and superabundant, perfectly adequate to the debt of all sins committed in this world. It gives to man's actions great worth before God, and without it they would be deserving of no esteem whatever. This David seems to have had in view when having asked himself, What shall I render to the Lord for all the things that he hath rendered to me? And finding nothing besides this satisfaction, which he expressed by the word chalice, a worthy return for so many and such great favors, he replied, I will take the chalice of salvation, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 115. 
There is another kind of satisfaction which is called canonical and is performed within a certain fixed period of time. Hence, according to the most ancient practice of the church, when penitents are absolved from their sins, some penance is imposed, the performance of which is commonly called satisfaction. By the same name is called any sort of punishment endured for sin, although not imposed by the priest, but spontaneously undertaken and performed by ourselves. So there we pause, just to reflect the uh, sound, the uh, catechism sets forth three kinds of satisfaction. The first, which Christ our Lord performed on the cross, which was the perfect and superabundant satisfaction, which more than makes up, um, which is more than enough, as the word satisfaction implies. The word satis in Latin is an adverb which means enough, and so satisfaction means literally to to make enough. And the Catechism says that the um, Christ offering himself on the cross was more than enough satisfaction for any of the sins of mankind. And uh, the second kind of satisfaction is the canonical satisfaction, which the priest imposes in the sacrament of confession. And uh, so there, um, I think we can say that the works that we perform as penance um, are able to be united with the passion of Christ on the cross. Because there we, we remember that the sacraments are a way that we can sort of plug into the plug into the passion. We can make use of Christ's passion. The graces of the passion flow to us through the sacraments. And so therefore we can um, sort of participate in that superabundant satisfaction which Christ makes on the cross. And then finally, um, the sort of satisfaction that we can make without having been... Um, without having it having been imposed by the priest in confession, anytime we make a some kind of penance, voluntary penance on our own, some kind of sacrifice, um, is also satisfaction for, this, for, for our sins. So the Catechism continues under the subheading, the elements of sacramental satisfaction. This, however, does not belong to penance as a sacrament, only that satisfaction constitutes part of the sacrament, which, as we have already said, is offered to God for sins at the command of the priest. Furthermore, it must be accompanied by a deliberate and firm purpose carefully to avoid sin for the future. For to satisfy, as some define it, is to pay due honor to God. And this, it is evident, no person can do who is not entirely resolved to avoid sin. Again, to satisfy is to cut off all occasions of sin and to close every avenue against its suggestions. In accordance with this idea of satisfaction, some have defined it as a cleansing which effaces whatever defilement may remain in the soul from the stains of sin and which exempts us from the temporal chastisements due to sin. And uh, we pause here, although the Catechism uh, doesn't tell us who gave us those definitions of satisfaction, uh, we can see that the, uh, these definitions are from St. Augustine and St. Anselm. Um, in the supplement to the Summa, in the third part of the Summa, the supplement, uh, there's an article whether the definition of satisfaction given in the text is suitable. And the first objection says, it quotes St. Augustine, 
um, his definition was, satisfaction is to uproot the causes of sins and to give no opening to the suggestions thereof. And then in the uh, um, fourth or the fifth objection, we see the Summa quoting St. Anselm. It says, further, Anselm gives another definition in his book, Cur Deus Homo, Why Did God Become Man? He says, satisfaction consists in giving God due honor. So we can see that the uh, catechism is quoting these um, ancient definitions from Augustine and Anselm. Uh, let's continue here, though. The next subheading is the necessity of satisfaction. Such being the nature of satisfaction, it will not be difficult to convince the faithful of the necessity imposed on the penitent of performing works of satisfaction. They are to be taught that sin carries in its train two evils, the stain and the punishment. Whenever the stain is effaced, the punishment of eternal death is forgiven with a guilt to which it was due. Yet as the Council of Trent declares, the remains of sin and the temporal punishment are not always remitted. Of this, the scriptures afford many conspicuous examples such as are found in the third chapter of Genesis, in the 12th and 22nd of Numbers, and in many other places. And so here we see that the Catechism says that although the stain is effaced, nonetheless the punishment, the remains of sin and the temporal punishments are not always remitted, citing the third chapter of Genesis where we see that God is talking to um, Adam and Eve, directly after their sin, he, he says in that chapter, in verse 16, To the woman also he said, I will multiply thy sorrows and thy conceptions. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thou shalt be under thy husband's power, and he shall have dominion over thee. And to Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat, cursed is the earth in thy work, with labor and toil shalt thou eat thereof all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herbs of the earth. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the earth, out of which thou wast taken. For dust thou art, and into dust thou shalt return. So there we see um, the punishment due to sin is not necessarily taken away, um, although the sin itself is. And so we continue reading. He says, That of David, however, is the best known and most striking. Although the prophet Nathan had announced to him, The Lord also hath taken away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Yet David voluntarily subjected himself to the most severe penance, imploring night and day the mercy of God in these words, Wash me yet more from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my iniquity and my sin is always before me. Thus did he beseech the Lord to pardon not only the crime, but also the punishment due to it, and to restore him. Cleansed from the remains of sin to his former state of purity and integrity. This he besought with most earnest supplications, and yet the Lord punished his transgressions with the loss of his adulterous offspring, the rebellion and death of his beloved son Absalom, and with the other chastisements and calamities with which he had previously threatened him. In Exodus 2, we read that 
Though the Lord yielded to the prayer of Moses and spared the idolatrous Israelites, yet he threatened the enormity of their crime with heavy punishments, with heavy chastisement. And Moses himself declared that the Lord would take severest vengeance on it, even to the third and fourth generations. That such was at all times the doctrine of the Holy Fathers and the Catholic Church, their own testimony most clearly proves. Then the Catechism continues with the, with the subheading. Now the Catechism continues with the subheading, The Advantages of Satisfaction. First, it is required by God's justice and mercy. Why in the sacrament of penance, as in that of baptism, the punishment due to sin is not entirely remitted, is admirably explained in these words of the Council of Trent. Divine justice seems to require that they who through ignorance sinned before baptism should recover the friendship of God in a different manner from those who after they have been freed from the thraldom of sin and the devil and have received the gifts of the Holy Ghost, dread not knowingly to violate the temple of God and grieve the Holy Ghost. It is also in keeping with the divine mercy not to remit our sins without any satisfaction, lest taking occasion hence and imagining our sins less grievous than they are, we should become injurious, as it were, and contumelious to the Holy Ghost, and should fall into greater enormities, treasuring up to ourselves wrath against the day of wrath. These satisfactory penances have, no doubt, great influence in recalling from, and as it were, bridling against sin, and in rendering the sinner more vigilant and cautious for the future. Uh, and we continue, satisfaction atones to the church. Furthermore, these satisfactions serve as testimonies of our sorrow for sin committed, and thus atone to the church which it grievously insulted by our crimes, which is grievously insulted by our crimes. God, says St. Augustine, despises not a contrite and humble heart. But as heartfelt grief is generally concealed from others and is not manifested by words or other signs, wisely, therefore, are penitential times appointed by those who preside over the church in order to atone to the church in which sins are forgiven. Next, satisfaction deters others from sin. Besides, the example presented by our penitential practices serves as a lesson to others how to regulate their lives and practice piety. Seeing the punishments inflicted on sin, they must feel the necessity of using the greatest circumspection through life and of correcting their former habits. The Church, therefore, with great wisdom, ordained that when anyone had committed a public crime, a public penance should be imposed on him in order that others, being deterred by fear, might more carefully avoid sin in future. This has sometimes been observed even with regard to secret sins of more than usual gravity. But with regard to public sinners, as we have already said, they were never absolved until they had performed public penance. During the performance of this penance, the pastors poured out prayers to God for their salvation and ceased not to exhort the penitents to do the same. In this respect, great was the care and solicitude of St. Ambrose of whom it is related that many who came to the tribunal of penance with hardened hearts were so softened by his tears as to conceive the sorrow of true contrition. But in process of time, the severity of ancient discipline was so relaxed and charity grew so cold that in our days many of the faithful think 
inward sorrow of soul and grief of heart unnecessary for obtaining pardon, imagining that a mere appearance of sorrow is sufficient. I guess we might comment that in our time we don't really see public penances imposed as maybe happened in the past. Um, so, uh, so this particular section um, would be that would be interesting if we um, actually saw these public penances, <laughs> and, uh, and so. Um, but but occasionally we do see the church censuring um, um, people that have sinned grievously and um, have told them they have to spend the rest of their lives in penance. And nonetheless, uh, we can still see the point here. Our next subheading is, By satisfaction we are made like unto Christ. Again, by undergoing these penances, we are made like unto Jesus Christ our head, inasmuch as he himself suffered and was tempted. As St. Bernard observes, nothing can appear so unseemly as a delicate member under a head crowned with thorns. To use the words of the Apostle, we are joint heirs with Christ, yet so if we suffer with him. And again, if we be dead with him, we shall live also with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Satisfaction heals the wounds of sin. St. Bernard also observes that sin produces two effects a stain on the soul, and a wound. That the stain is removed through the mercy of God, while to heal the wound inflicted by sin, the remedy of penance is most necessary. When a wound has been healed, some scars remain which demand attention. Likewise, with regard to the soul, after the guilt of sin is forgiven, some of its effects remain from which the soul requires to be cleansed. St. Chrysostom fully confirms the same doctrine when he says, it is not enough that the arrow has been extracted from the body. The wound which it inflicted must also be healed. So with regard to the soul, it is not enough that sin has been pardoned. The wound which it has left must also be healed by penance. St. Augustine also frequently teaches that penance exhibits at once the mercy and the justice of God. His mercy by which he pardons sin and the eternal punishments due to sin his justice by which he exacts temporary punishment from the sinner. And finally, the last advantage of satisfaction, satisfaction disarms the divine vengeance. Finally, the punishment which the sinner endures disarms the vengeance of God and averts the punishments decreed against us. Thus the apostle says, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But whilst we are judged, we are chastised by the Lord, that we be not condemned with this world. If all this is explained to the faithful, it must have great influence in exciting them to perform works of penance. And so that's where we'll end today. Um, we'll just spend one more day on the sacrament of penance. Um, we've just talked about the uh, six advantages of satisfaction. It's, first of all, it's required by God's justice. Second, it atones to the church that is insulted by our sins. Third, satisfaction deters others from sin. Uh, fourth, satisfaction makes us to imitate Christ. We're more like Christ when we do this, performs works of satisfaction. Fifth, satisfaction heals the wounds of sin. And there we have that, um, that example that it, the arrow 
the sacrament of penance, um, it's almost as if it extracts the arrow, but nonetheless there's a wound left in our bodies by the arrow of sin, which penance, which, which satisfaction um, heals. And finally, this last short paragraph, the sixth advantage, that satisfaction disarms the divine vengeance. So in our next episode, we'll talk about the, the final um, pages in the Catechism Concerning the Sacrament of Penance, um, the conditions for satisfaction, the um, duties of the confessor as regards satisfaction, and then the Catechism ends with a short admonition. We might also try to um, insert some small um, readings from the Summa Concerning Satisfaction as well. So thank you for joining me in this episode of Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent. I'm Mark Langley, and we look forward to our next episode. Thank you.